welcome to episode 235 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. We have got a super special episode ahead of us. I know we say that a lot, but in this case, relatively speaking, it is more special on average for two reasons. One, because we are finally going to give away a copy of the book Reset by David Murray, and that's coming at the end. So you've got to listen or at least drag your finger across that scroll bar and go all the way to the end. But we're going to give away at the end of this episode a copy of that book. And the second reason why this is a special episode is because this topic, what we're talking about on this episode is entirely listener driven. And I'm purposefully bearing the lead because this, what we're about to talk about, this very thing is probably top three of the things we get feedback and pushback about. And we're, we've decided let's dedicate a whole episode to getting this all out in the open. Yes. Yeah. Matt Chandler once in a while preaches a sermon. I don't know if he does this anymore, but he used to preach sermons he called Space Makers. And it was basically like when <laughs> the sanctuary started looking a little bit too full, he would preach a sermon that would thin it out a little bit. And uh, I don't know if that was actually his intention, but he said that in a sermon once. So I feel like maybe this is one of those Space Maker episodes. Can we take that and appropriate it? Is that like trademark? Because that's beautiful. I don't care. It, it's ours now. He put it on the internet. That means you can take it. All right. So this is an SM episode, Space Maker. We're going to make that happen. So, and before I even disclose what we're talking about, let's first talk a little bit about affirmations and denials. How about you first? All right. So I've got what is probably one of the more eccentric affirmations that I have had in a long time. Yes. Let's keep it going. This episode is getting greater by the second. So Ashley and I were looking for a movie to watch the other night. I'm not going to recommend the movie um, just because I'm not, but... We we watched a movie called Eurovision Song Contest, <laughs> and that sent us down this rabbit hole into the actual Eurovision Song Contest. Yes, which is an annual. Uh, the best way to describe it is to it's like the European World Cup of sort of like high energy songwriting. It's 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 very a strange concept for Americans. It's kind of like one part American Idol. But it, it's not even that. It's it's like Miss America. Like there's regional contests and the winners of the regional contests go to the national. And then the national goes to the uh, to like this pan-European contest. Right. But the music that comes out of these, first of all, it's really weird music because it's, it's like European style music that we're just not used to as Americans and North Americans. But it's really good. So go to YouTube, um, look up Eurovision Song Contest. It's been going on for like 50, 60 years or something like that. It's not a new phenomena. Um, some of the more like famous winners were like ABBA won a bunch of times. Yes. Um, so that gives you an idea of like sort of the kind of band you would expect. Um, but it's a stage show. So there's like coordinated dancing a lot of times. Um, it's usually pretty high energy. They're trying to pump up the crowd. There's a popular vote aspect to it. But then it's, it's also like the Olympics a little bit that there's judges from each region that give points to the, it, it's kind of hard to explain. You just have to kind of look it up. So check it out. Look it up on YouTube. Look up Eurovision Song Contest. They have a playlist from every European country that entered in 2019. It's like 41 <laughs> minutes long. 
um, but they're really good and they're all really different styles. Yeah. Um, and also just a little bit of self-denial on this. They're almost all in English. So like we have like 50 countries and then they all speak English to sing and they, they like they sing and you can't tell they have an accent. You wouldn't know they were a European band most of the time because they're they sing with an American style accent. So self-denial on me that I only speak English, but um, it's pretty awesome. It's pretty cool music. How did you come across this? And this the movie was trending in Netflix, and so we we That's we watched wild. the movie. Um, and the, the movie's not bad, especially considering the topic we're going to talk about. It's not like I wouldn't recommend it. I'm just not currently recommending it. Um, but the movie wasn't bad. But it just sent us down this rabbit trail once the movie was done to like figure out is this a real thing that this movie is based on? And it it is like it totally is. Um, and it's funny because a lot of the there's a lot of people in the movie that unless you watch Eurovision Song Contest or whatever it's called, um, you wouldn't know what they're actually like former contestants and winners that are like cameoed in the movie. So it's it's a pretty it's a pretty interesting subject. So check it out. Look it up on YouTube. Listen to it. Crank your uh, crank your volume up and, and just enjoy some good head bop and music. Just enjoy. I love how hardcore we're burying this lead. <laughs> the topic like all the way you referenced it and so i'll reference it as well with my affirmation except that mine actually has nothing to do with what we're talking about but i just want to build that on that mystery so um i I just want to say actually i do want to stop for a second and say i just appreciate how different all the time our affirmations denials are (laughs) like it's like where else like what our theology podcasts are talking about like eurovision song contests which i i'm only like generally familiar with that concept because i know that a lot of music gets produced from that contest yeah like there's a lot of music actually it's a big deal and we almost as like westerners like americans i think don't have a sense of it but it's it's really like a profound contest and whole process and experience so i appreciate that and I think that sometimes like Americans in particular, think of your music mainly as just like house beat, like techno bebopping, which like yeah. there is a lot of good music in that realm. But it's not exclusively that. Yeah. Well, and a lot of these songs, they take elements of the, the sort of traditional music of their, like their respective countries. And then they do mix it with sort of that, like more pan European right. house music that a lot of times we think of, like when you think of like Swedish music, you think of like weird house music, like house beat music. <laughs> so, but, but the, these Why, artists, because be weird house music, <laughs> it's weird from our perspective. It's weird because it's not regular house music. It's, it's like, it's you, you'll understand when you watch when you listen to some of these some of these bands and because these songs are not necessarily being produced for mass distribution yes, they're not that's studio true. songs yep. they're they're songs that are intended to get the crowd going to sort of re- reflect their own homeland in a lot of ways watching watching the movie and and it looks like from from what it looks like they they pretty faithfully represented like the auditorium and the the crowd that comes to these things, people are come like wearing like their their country's colors. They got right. flags that like it's like they're at the World Cup. So this is like a huge deal in Europe, really really big deal. And um, so they they're trying to represent their country a little more intentionally than they might if they were just trying to produce a song that'll sell a lot of copies. So the the music gets synthesized with that with that sort of dubstep house beat kind of thing it gets synthesized with that with some more traditional ways of singing as a swede or singing as an israeli or whatever it is and it it really is pan-european it's not just western europe it's the eastern bloc it's russia it's countries in the middle east like one of the winners from azerbaijan like countries that 
I mean, Azerbaijan's not a country nobody's ever heard of, but there's countries right. in there that like the little tiny like European bloc countries that you wouldn't, you probably would never have heard of in most cases unless you really went after it. So I, I, I thought it was really, really good music. I'm going to, I'm going to build a playlist on Apple uh, music and, and listen to it on the way to work tomorrow. I love it. The thing is listening to music broadly is just as good as to reading broadly, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, there's something beautiful about being exposed to things that sound different to your ear or that like sound. Cause what you're saying, I, I've given you a hard time cause I totally resonate we it's amazing how much of music is convention. So yeah. you're used to like certain melodies, certain shaping yep. of notes, lack of a bending of notes, for instance, especially in like the Western ear. And there's so much music and you might say like, well, that doesn't sound like music, but of course right. it's music. It is noise by design as God has intended it to be. And it's amazing how much culture influences that. So yeah. it's really good to yeah. listen broadly. That's all I got to yeah. say. That That's a beautiful recommendation right there. That's a wonderful affirmation. And at this point, because we're into episode like 235, at this point, who can even remember what affirmations <laughs> we've given at this point? And that's ironic, given the one I'm about to give. I know that I, I think at this point, I'm like I'm contractually obligated. Like it's it's maybe every 50 episodes for me to affirm popcorn with coconut oil, but I'm not <laughs> doing that today. I'm not doing that today. I think that's coming up soon. But it's got us soon. I'm actually affirming with something that I'm I'm fearful I've affirmed before, but I can't remember. And that's why we all need this affirmation. And that is memory techniques. And yes. so I this is something I kind of picked up as a hobby a little while ago. I've been so impressed with how God has made the mind to remember things. And it's not about trying to force ourselves to remember, but trying to work alongside of how God has created us to remember. remember. So I'm recommending a book. If you've not been exposed to this before, I think it's a wonderful introduction. It's actually called The Memory Book, The Classic Guide <laughs> to Improving Your Memory at Work, at School, and at Play. And it's by two, I would say, unique pair. It's a unique pair of people here. Harry Lorraine and Jerry Lucas. Some of some of you may know them as names in the NBA, especially Jerry Lucas in basketball at the New York Knickerbockers. But this is like a great book. If you're the kind of person that's thought like, I just can't remember things. I'm horrible with names or even memorizing scripture is so difficult for me. I encourage you, pick up this book and start to think about how God has made us to actually recall details, specific details, and especially the scriptures. But I would encourage you to look at this because this is a great way to get your memory working and to maybe if you've thought memorization is just so difficult, it's not who I am. I wasn't made to remember things. I would push starkly against that and say, I think it's possible that you just actually haven't been taught how to remember things well. And this is a really great introduction into that topic. Yeah. Sounds like a good plan. I mean, I, uh, I feel like I have a pretty good memory, but only for certain things. So it'd be good for me to have, uh, a book that helps me kind of expand what I'm able to have a good memory for into other areas. Cause like sometimes Ashley will ask me, she'll be like, all right, go downstairs, get me this thing, that thing, that thing, and that thing. She'll give me like four or five things to get. And I'll come up with like three of them. And she'll be like, what happened to the other two? And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I just, <laughs> you gave me more than three things and that's all I got. That's all I can remember. Right. So so yeah, it'd be good for me to have some. I'll have to check that out. Yeah, this is the kind of thing that uh, it's so intensely practical. There's a lot here because we talk about like in history, kind of like in antiquity. Think about bards or professional orders telling stories, giving speeches when there was not the same kind of, we've affirmed in this podcast before how much we love note-taking devices when those things were totally absent. And so how did people 
conceptualize. Remember, are we saying that that was really just the purview of this select few that could actually handle it? Or when God says that we should hide his word in our hearts, did he actually mean that for everybody? And that sometimes it means we just have to embrace that challenge, understand how it is that we undertake that and to use science the way the guys Chris do that well. So nobody's going to believe me on this because of course, like you can't see me right now. You can see me right now, but here's, I want to prove something about how, like, I think life-changing this book, these techniques could be. Mainly, I'm going to spoil it a little bit. The whole point is like envisioning something. You talk about memory palaces where you like pack things in your mind. You go through them based on like some spatial reality. You look at your home and you picture yourself walking through the living room and you guide yourself into topics and ideas as you remember certain things in there. But you'll read the first chapter, maybe it's the second chapter of this book. And they're gonna, he's going to give you a list of, the author's going to give you a list of 10 things. It's going to help you how to memorize those things. And they're nonsensical list of 10 things. So to your point, somebody might say to you, you need to go to the grocery store. I want you to memorize these, these 10 things. He says, you shouldn't even need to write those down. You should be able to memorize them. I'm going to give you those 10 things. I read this chapter once yesterday and I read it in passing, not even probably giving my full scope, but because I've been developing this technique beyond just the, what I read yesterday, I'll give you those things. Are you ready? This is well, going to be like not, not, not that impressive, I guess, but I'm going to give you yeah, this. Cause you could be making it up. Exactly. But no you, you can, know. you can see me. I'm making eye contact with you. I'm not looking at anything else in the book, but here's the things nonsensical airplane, tree, envelope, earrings, bucket, singing, basketball, salami, star, nose, 10 items, which I read yesterday. And the images that I have in my head are so ingrained that I can recall them to you just like that. Consider this, loved ones. If we could do this with the scriptures, what would that mean for our lives? And that's really why I'm so involved in these memory techniques. Because not just like, it'd be great for you to memorize more people's names and know more things at work, to be able to read an article, remember statistics or certain things. But I want to be able to use this to really pull all of the scriptures into my mind and then be able to use them in this way for guided living and for encouragement for instruction, for just worship. So that's why I'm yeah. saying go check out this book. It's called The Memory Book. You'll love it. I like it. That's a good it's a good recommendation. Once I finish my 18 books that I'm trying to work on now, I'll <laughs> consider that. Wait, do I you mean, know the names like, of all 18? Uh, no, I, that's, I don't even know what I'm reading right now. I, I mean, it sounds like I need to go back and reread Reset. Oh, well, you know, so. it's a great book, which, by the way, I don't know if you knew this, but we're giving away a copy at the end. We Not are now. At the end. Not now. Yeah. At the end. All right. So you got to listen all the way to the end, though. Let's do denials. So I'm denying a website, and this website is called rivalnations.org. Have you ever heard of this website? <laughs> I have not. Do I need to go to this right now? Don't. No. Oh, okay. It's, it's not anything bad. Well, it's bad, but it's not anything like you're going to want to hide in your browser history or something like that. Um, this is a website that is it's, – it's the same um, – Socinian uh, Anabaptist nonsense that we see in lots of different places. But this came up. Um, I recently rejoined the Reform Pub, and there was a question about an article in this. And the article in question is titled, Your Bible Has Been Censored. And it's an article all about how we should be using the Septuagint as our base text or as our primary base text rather than the Masoretic text, uh, which is a super nerdy topic. But when you dig just a tiny bit below the surface, you start to see that there's all these really terrible theological presuppositions that undergird this. Denials of um, things like inerrancy and infallibility. Uh, there's there's the same kind of classic Anabaptist Bardian uh, distinction between uh, Jesus as the word of God and the Bible as pointing to the word of God. 
Um, they, they are annihilationists or conditionalists. Um, there's just a lot of really bad stuff. So it's unfortunate because it's a slick website. Like it's a really well put together website and the articles are, are well written from a stylistic perspective. Um, and as far as a presentation, they're well done, but the theology is just terrible. And I want to read, um, a passage or a verse. I've seen this come up more and more often, but I want to start focusing on it more. So this is Romans 16 verses 17 and 18. And I'm going to, um, I'm going to read out of the King James version. I'll explain why here, but it says, now I beseech you, brethren, mark them, which cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine, which you have learned and avoid them for they that are such serve not our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own belly and by good words and fair speech, deceive the hearts of the simple. So uh, that, that phrase I want to key in on is mark and avoid. And so, so we are not a discernment podcast. We're not, I'm not a discernment blogger. I'm not much of a blogger at all these days, but every Christian needs to be practicing discernment. And one of the things that we should recognize is that sometimes a person's theology is so bad uh, and that they're so set on causing divisions and being divisive that the best thing we can do for ourselves, for the body at large, and for this person in, in particular is to mark them for what they are and to avoid them. And in this case, this is one of those things like sometimes you eat the meat and spit out the bones and sometimes the meat is poisoned too. And so this, this website, the person who's writing this, um, it, it, it's just poison meat all the way through. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter that you can chew it and swallow it. it it's not going to choke you to death. It's going to poison you from the inside out if you, if you digest too much of it. So there's not much more to say about it. It's just bad theology. Um, but I have a feeling because I've seen this website crop up in a couple places online, a couple different references that, um, I, I sort of started to take notice of it. And then when this question came up in the pub about this article, and I had a few minutes to actually do a little bit of research and give a, give a thorough response to the article, um, as thorough as you can be in a Facebook post, I suppose. I started to look at it and go, Ooh, this is, this is bad juju. So, um, so Mark and avoid, just, just avoid this website. Um, unless you are doing the work of responding to it, obviously like arguments that are out on the internet need responses. So that's not what I'm saying. But if you're talking about, well, it's a, you know, it's a good website. Sometimes they have some good things to say. They do. There's, there's some things on the website that are insightful. There's some things that are well articulated. The articles look like they're decently researched. Um, you're not going to be edified by reading trash, uh, unless you are reading it in order to respond to it or to sort of understand that position in order to be able to kind of respond to it. Um, I'm not normally one to say, just avoid reading something unless it's really bad. And this, this falls in that category. Are you saying that intent precedes content? It does. It really does. <laughs> this guy's article, the whole, like when you dig into this, this Septuagint art article, besides the fact that it's just poor, this, this article is not a great example of ones that are well-researched right. or well-argued. Um, there's a, you know, his main argument is like, there's a couple places where the new Testament authors quote the Septuagint in a way that disagrees with the Masoretic text, which plot twists, the people who, who favor the Masoretic text understand, know that like right. we're not ignorant of that fact. Right. 
but he doesn't at all bring up the contrary point, which is the far more often times that the Masoretic text and the uh, New Testament quotations seem to agree over and against the Septuagint. Um, he seems to be fine with the fact that like the Septuagint has different versions of some of the books of the Bible. Um, it, you know, it's, and it's got more than the, the Protestant old, old Testament Canon. Um, he, he takes kind of the Anabaptist approach of like, well, those were taken out of the Bible, which is weird because the Anabaptists don't typically acknowledge things like Ezra and exactly. the Maccabees, but, right. but for some reason he wants to. And then when you finally get down to the, to the core of what he's going after, he's attacking penal substitutionary atonement and the Septuagint. Septuagint version of certain key texts definitely presents a different picture than the Masoretic text or the English Bibles that we're used to, which rely on the Masoretic text. So his his whole argument is is basically to undercut penal substitution, and he's doing this back end around around it. But yeah, if you're just reading for your own personal advocation or study, there are far better resources out there for that approach some similar topics. Um, but yeah, he's got a full on denial of the sovereignty of God, the, the purposes of God in ordaining mm. governments to power, like just a full denial of these things. Um, I, he doesn't say he's an open theist, but I'd be really surprised if he wasn't. So yeah, just mark that as bad and avoid it. It's not worth it. Generally speaking, if it sounds like open theism and smells like open theism, it's probably open theism. <laughs> A great setup. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. That is professional podcasting loved ones. So let me, I'm going to just like tag on to that because I think we got kind of the same genus in terms of the denials this time. So for whatever reason, this particular week, I was like, you know what I need in my life? I need a little like first century, like church action. So I was like, you know, what? I'm just going to go back and read Acts because Acts is awesome. And I was, yeah. I don't know, there was, I was kind of hungering for like a little bit of the sense of like the historicity of the original church and just all like the wonderful action. It plays out like a drama. It's yeah. so amazing. So I found myself going through Acts and then I got to Acts chapter 13 where Paul and Barnabas are at Antioch and Pisidia. And of course, like, you know, they're doing their thing. They're becoming the gospel. Amazing things are happening in the work that Paul is doing in the preaching that he is promulgating. And Sometimes I surprise myself that I am a reformed person. And here's why, because like, I think, <laughs> I think there's like a place for being said, like, well, some people, they so starkly like appropriate a systematized understanding of the Bible that when they read it, all they can see is that systemized approach. And I actually would like to think that I'm, I'm not that way that like you and I arrived at reformed theology only as we said before, because it is the most appropriate, the most comprehensive, right. the most true, the most strong in its fidelity to what the scriptures are actually preaching in the full narrative of God. And I had one of those moments yet again, and it happened in Acts 13, like, and like totally unexpectedly, like I literally shut the Bible, the scriptures down. I was just sitting in my chair and was like, oh my gosh, here it is again. <laughs> and so I'm kind of just denying against like, I love that Paul says, he says in his preaching, like, listen, you're sensible people. Just weigh out what the scriptures tell you, like and yeah. weigh it out in terms of like the full context of what God is doing and what he said through his prophets and the apostles. Like as the spirit has carried along these people to write down what God has said, just weigh it out. You are sensible. There's something so wonderful about that. It's not like you need a special qualification. You need only the Holy Spirit who will lead you into all truth. So right. as like a setup, I'm kind of denying against this. Like I sometimes think that Christians actually, the criticism against Reformed theology 
is unfair that it's like, well, you've systematized something, therefore you read everything into it. Because right. I come across verses like this in Acts chapter 13. This is verse 48. And this is the Gentiles, Gentiles, not the Jews, responding to what Paul and Barnabas have said as they've been traveling and preaching. And in verse 48, we find this. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing, heard this being, by the way, all the gospel message that is necessary for the word of God to be spoken to you first, and that the truth comes through hearing, and that Jesus Christ is satisfied, all these things, all that good stuff. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And then here's this phrase, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. So like, <laughs> I, I got to that verse and I was like, my goodness, again, like people want to pair up and like create this straw man, like John, you know, 316, like all who believe. And the thing is, that doesn't say anything about why you believe. It yeah. doesn't say anything about the capacity to believe. And here we find like basically an explanation, some clarifying of the point, as a many as were appointed to eternal life believe. I think you've made the point yeah. over and over in our conversations that it's almost like John 3.16 is saying like, as, the, as they were believing, the believing ones were the ones who were saved, right? right. And yep. so here we just have, like, I just think I hear Paul's voice saying to me like, listen, Jesse, you're sensible. Just read what's being said, here, <laughs> yeah. right? Like in a way, you're sensible. Like just read what's being said here and playing on the surface. What yeah. do we do with that preposition? What do we do with that qualification? They were glorifying in the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, those were the ones that believe. In other words, the appointing came before the belief, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, they say like the three rules of interpretation are context, context, context. And I always say like, if... If the text seems to be saying something different than what you understand the truth to be, then read a little further. And there are one of two things that's going to happen. Either the text is going to correct you or the text is actually going to be showing you what is going on. Right. right. Either way, we want to, we want the text to be driving our understanding. And I have never encountered a situation so far where an, an, a non-reformed person throws a sort of silver bullet text at me that isn't resolved by just reading a little bit further, right? Like reading a chapter before, reading a chapter after, um, it, it it very rarely takes a large scale systematic approach to a given subject to answer a particular objection, and that's because reformed theology and the reformed interpretation of theology of the Bible is the correct way to interpret the Bible, and so you shouldn't have to go very far in a given text to support and justify what it is you're trying to say. And usually it's usually when I run into those situations, it's plus or minus five verses on either side. It's, it's not even, it's not even usually a full chapter before like their position is clearly refuted by a plain surface reading of the text. Right. Um, so yeah, you're, you're, this is a, this is a perfect example of this is someone could read this text and see that the uh, they began rejoicing and glorifying at the word of the Lord. See those right, people, right, the ones chose. who heard and chose to chose to glorify and, and rejoice. Those are the ones who are saved. Well, just read a little further. As many as who were appointed to you know to believe, they believed. So yeah, you're right. That's a great. It's a great denial of how how often it is that we just don't let the scripture scripture speak for itself. And I think it's kind of like, and, and I just have to leave it here because this is like a denial bomb that I'm kind of dropping. Like we could do a whole episode on this. And I think actually we've probably done 234 episodes essentially <laughs> on this. Yes. 
But this idea that somehow the Reformed tradition of theology reads more into the scriptures than is there, when I actually think it's the other way around, because some will say, like, they'll read again in Acts about the the day of Pentecost, and they'll say, well, well, look at this group. They heard Peter preach the gospel, and then they said, sirs, what must we do to be saved? But do you see what precedes that is they were cut to the core. Who cut them? Who appointed them? This is God doing the work first. Yep. And so it, we just focus on like, it's more comfortable for us to have a sense that choosing makes us feel like everybody has equal opportunity. But yeah. given the sinful Nate of mankind, th- did I just say sinful Nate? <laughs> <laughs> I, I, you know, I didn't uh, even notice. It just seems so natural to me. Yeah. That's a joke that only our, our long-term listeners will get. Yeah. The sinful Nate or sinful state of mankind. <laughs> It's so prevalent. It's so ubiquitous. Again, it's not that we're as bad as we could be, but that that depravity is so pervasive. It's in every part of who we are. That and this is where I want to quote the, like I said before, the group Phineas. Free will is a death sentence. Until we get to that point in understanding that, that no person is actually choosing on their own volition outside of the Holy Spirit to come before a holy God or to even seek after a holy God or to even want a holy God. Until yeah. we understand that, all these like little you know expressions of well, I've played a part in this. I, I, it's all foolishness. Love it. It's really all foolishness. And so, yeah. I'm just denying against that generally. I know that like we, you and I, really want to launch in like four or five hours right now on this topic. Yeah, unfortunately, we've buried the lead <laughs> enough. I think so, Jesse. <laughs> Our, our listeners are sitting on bated breath trying to figure out what we're going to say that's going to make them not want to listen to the show anymore. Let's so get to it. What, what, are we, what are we talking about today? All right. Everybody, grab your devices and find your unsubscribe button because it's possible you're <laughs> going to want to hit it after we get here. Because this yes. is, is it fair to say this is top three of the things that we get contacted about? Yeah. Yeah. I think probably in the top three. Um, at the time that this happened, it was easily the most yes, the most uh, pushed back against thing and most pushed back against topic. It's actually like two things kind of. So let's it put is. it this way. It's probably actually like two things in the top five <laughs> things that we've had responses on. Yes. And here they're married together in this yes. unique yes. It, subject that we're going to talk yes, about. Yes, I agree. And I'm going to tease it just for a second more because I can actually tell sometimes we'll get contacted by listeners will say to us, we're going, they're going through the back catalog, which, which I love for them to do. Yeah. And I can always tell when they get to this point, because then yep. usually we get contacted. And so this is a particular thing you and I've talked about, but it's manifest in a particular way in our culture right now. And so I'm going to give you the thing by which it, it is the lightning rod, and then we'll talk about it. And so that's three words, game of thrones. So oh, man. We have before, and this started because I think an episode, as you said, 54, correct? 51. 51. Just kidding. I don't know the episodes. I should really memorize (laughs) those. So in episode 51, where we started doing affirmations and denials, one of those denials was against Game of Thrones, but that denial was really a manifestation of something behind that series. And that was something about sexual purity and how we approach that. And so what we receive on, I would say on a regular basis is in particular pushback against how we've been outspoken against watching Game of Thrones. But really the idea behind that is because we're talking about something about what does it mean 
to have a sense of fidelity to what Jesus commanded, what the scriptures teach about sexual immorality. And in this particular week, we received a really lovely email from a listener who was asking about this. And actually, we, we have a lot, when people actually push back against us, I, I must say, in deference to them, to our listeners, to our brothers and sisters who are listening to this conversation, they're always, for the most part, very kind. They're asking, yes. why is it that you're taking such a hard road on this? Is this not a matter of personal liberty in Christ? And we've, I think, decidedly taken a different tone against that. And so the email that came into us this week was one in which, let's just say hypothetically, we have two people who a man and a woman who are in any kind of relationship with each other, uh, dating or married, but they're seeking some sense of appropriate intimacy with one another. And that would be according to the relationship that they have under God. And so the question is, can one or the other of them watch something like Game of Thrones in good conscience? Or really, is there no way to watch this in good conscience? And this is why we get a lot of feedback on it. So this whole conversation, because in the past, We've only teased this a little bit. We've either in our denial said we're kind of against this, but we've never really devoted a full explanation to this particular topic. And that is what we're about to endeavor to do right now. Yeah. Yeah. So in episode 51, um, this came up almost as like a like an example of the broader question that we were addressing. Um, we, We were talking about kind of like, how is it that we take our faith and our, our, we weren't even, we didn't even initially start off talking about like sexual purity topics, but this was an example that at the time was really sort of like red hot on the internet because the, I think it was right about when the show was ending. So everybody was talking about it. Um, the conversations had been coming up in various online groups and we took a pretty firm, a pretty firm stance. I should say I took a pretty firm stance on it and you agreed with me is that the, the, the reality of this particular show, and there's a dozen other shows probably just like it that you could think of off the top of your head that fall under the same category. But Game of Thrones particularly, um, it, it really drives the storyline along. Um, so, so that's the number one thing people say, like, well, I don't watch it because of the nudity. I watch it because of the story. But the storyline is driven along, from what I understand, having done a little bit of research to try to be able to speak um, articulately on this without actually engaging the content itself, because I think that the content is sinful. It drives the storyline along based on, um, highlighting and in some ways celebrating and glorifying the sinfulness of the people. And that is not necessarily intrinsically impossible to do without creating something intrinsically sinful, right? You can, you can create a story that has, um, at its central focus, the sinfulness of people driving that story forward without, without then glorifying or celebrating that you could even have within that story that people in the story, glorifying it drives that along without it's without outwardly glorifying it. I know that that's like a roundabout way to say this, but game of Thrones itself, because of the way the story is written, because of the way the, the show is adapted, the, the storyline itself the the people producing it are glorifying sin in how they've done it. They are are driving the story along with all sorts of sin, sinful sexual categories, and they have no qualms about putting actors and actresses in in those situations where they have to commit sin in order to produce those scenes. So not to be too graphic, 
but you have people on the screen who are getting naked and, and rubbing their bodies up against each other. Like there's no way to do that. It's not synthesized. It's not computer animated. It's not, it's not, you know, like obscured by something where they're not really doing it. Like they're really, they're really getting naked in front of each other and then touching each other in ways that they shouldn't be doing unless they're married to each other. And if they are married to each other, shouldn't be doing in front of other people. And so I, I take the position and we'll flesh this out a little bit. I take the position that there is no way to watch Game of Thor Game of Thrones without committing sin. Now, part of part of this person's question and part of the discussion that goes on is what happens if you are a person who believes differently? Like what what if you think that you can observe this, you can watch this, you can enjoy this kind of thing and that in itself is not sinful. That's not the position that I take, but it is a live question about what do we do with that? How does that relate to our sanctification, how does that relate to our justification? We also made the statement, I keep saying we, I made the statement that if you're a person who's watching this and uh, and don't feel guilty about it, don't have, have some sort of prick in your conscience about it, that maybe you should ask the question as to whether or not you're actually a Christian. Right. Um, so I think that's what we want to kind of unfold yes. and unpack a little bit, because that's where people push back on us. This was also the episode where I said that the Christian life is to try harder and do better. And I stand by that. I, I, I totally stand by what I said. I actually got a big kick out of listening to this again, because it was, it was one of those things that I said off the cuff that I was like, oh man, I probably should have thought that through a little more carefully. But it's one of those things actually it's aged really well, because as I've understood how sanctification operates, how God sanctifies us, and then how our good works flow out of that, how we, out of sheer gratitude for the Lord, strive to do good works. I actually think that that ages better. And I would say it even more strongly now with exactly the same qualifications I said at the time. So I, that, that's where I think we have to go today is we have to explore those two issues a little bit, particularly what about those people? And, and let's, let's separate this a little bit from Game of Thrones specifically. Right. What about those people who most of the Christian world looks at a given consumer item or topic and says clearly, no, this is just sinful. There's, there's no way around it. Every honest Christian should be able to look at this and, and say, yeah, yeah, no Christian should have any part of this. Um, a good example, Doug Wilson just wrote a book about a sex bot that's filled with filthy, terrible language. And, and I'm looking at that going, this is not even just qualification for elder matter. This is, this is just general Christianity that you shouldn't right. be consuming this, let alone writing it. And, and so people look at that and some people go, well, you know, it, it serves a purpose. He's trying to make a cultural commentary. And I'm going, I don't understand how any Christian can be involved in this. So what about those people? Do we say, how do we think about that kind of a thing? Because we don't want to be legalists. And if I were to say just carte blanche, anybody who ever watches a Game of Thrones uh, episode and enjoys it is clearly not a Christian. Right. Clearly they're going to hell. That's legalism. And that's not what we tried to articulate. And it's not what, what I think. And I, I know it's not what Jesse thinks. So I want to unpack that a little more. That's fair. And that's where this question ended. It's drew its conclusion. And it's a really good one because right. the question was basically, are we saying that if you watch Game of Thrones and somehow you can, you're in good conscience, you're not a Christian. And so we do want to get there. And I want to start by saying there's two things you got to realize. One, this episode is just going to go along. So settle in or yep, find the unsubscribe up. button again. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we're making space in lots of different ways, perhaps in this yes. one. But, but the second thing is, 
I think at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves as Christians, what are the absolute truths? And we're, we're easy to quote the sense that like, well, God is real and that Jesus Christ is the only son. So there's an absolute truth. But I'm actually talking to the family of God. When we get into what Jesus Christ prescribes to us as a lawful behavior, where is that line for us? And this is where Paul, of course, has so many great things to say. But at the end of the day, this is the question I would ask everybody I've been asking myself. Because here's the thing. Somebody can go back and listen from episode one all the way up to 235 as they hear our voices now. And they're going to hear us go through, hopefully, some sense of spiritual maturity. That we've right. talked about things that we've liked to watch. And I think now that we would say, like, well, we've been increasingly convicted that we ought not to watch those things. Yeah. And that I think part of that is the Christian life. And what you see in our lives is it's all in full display. In fact, you can go back, it's all on the internet, and you can listen to us. And part of that for me has been answering this question. Is the wisdom of God trustworthy? Yeah. That is, when it comes down to it, if we're going to say that God is the most knowledgeable about all things, and whatever he prescribes, whatever he sets forward for us as appropriate reasonable behavior. Am I willing to say, even if I don't understand it, or I think that I can handle something that's beyond what he says, am I willing to say, God, you are just, you are right, and therefore I will obey, even when yeah. I don't understand it. Is the wisdom of God trustworthy? And so we've seems to come back to this question all the time. Christian liberty is a liberty with limits. And so the first right. principle is that things perfectly lawful in themselves are not always advantageous. So to the church or others or to one's own self, and therefore the question is not, is it lawful? But additionally, one must ask is if lawful, is it advantageous? And this is like the yeah. nuanced question of actual Christian living. Like, would you agree with that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's a big part of it is that even so, here's a good example, uh, uh, sort of in, enshrined in um, confessional language, right? So, when you look at the Westminster Catechisms and they're reflecting on how it is that we properly sanctify the Sabbath, uh, this will come back around, I promise. What they say is that they make a specific point to say that on the Sabbath, sometimes even things that are lawful other times of the week are not lawful on the Sabbath. Right. And so what that does for us as Reformed Christians is it sets up this situation where we can acknowledge sometimes things may not be intrinsically sinful in themselves, uh, but they, they may be sinful in a particular context. So that's one factor that we should think about is in my particular context, who I am in the situation I'm in, in the relationships that I have with other people is this thing sinful? Even if it isn't sinful in itself, it may not be sinful for someone else. That would involve and include like, is my own conscience sensitive to this? Um, you know, some people may be sensitive to drinking alcohol in, in their conscience, right? We That's an example that we all kind of understand is that for some people, alcohol is a real stumbling block and a real barrier to holiness because they form addictions or because they form an unhealthy attachment to it. So, so for them, because they're sensitive and they believe it's sin, they believe that it's causing a barrier between them and their relationship with God or potentially with other people, then it's sinful for them, even though it's not sinful in itself. So right. that's one layer. The next layer is, is this wise? Is there a benefit to me? 
And we're not the kind of people who want to take the stance that says benefit must necessarily mean some spiritual benefit. If you've got a TV show that you enjoy that isn't intrinsically sinful and isn't sinful in your context with those things that we just talked about, uh, then then by all means, enjoy it. It doesn't have you don't have to derive some sort of special spiritual benefit in order to enjoy something. Sometimes the leisure and enjoyment of a thing is is just a perfectly fine reason to enjoy it. I play video games because it helps me unwind. It doesn't necessarily derive any spiritual benefit. I can make some tortured argument that the relaxation allows me more improved spiritual knowledge. Is that because I have better folk, blah, blah, blah. I could make an argument, but there's no need for that, right? The relaxation, the rest, the enjoyment of it is a thing in itself. Sometimes you eat because you need nourishment and sometimes you eat because something tastes really good right? That's fine. So I think those are kind of the concentric circles we have to start with is, is it intrinsically sinful? All right, we can't do that. Is right. it not intrinsically sinful, but sinful for my context for some reason? Great. But And, and there are a lot of uh, Christian college and seminary students that are not going to love me for saying this, but if you signed a card when you are signed a digital contract or a conduct code for your school when you started that says, I will not drink alcohol, it is not legalism for them to enforce that on you. You agreed to it. You chose to go there. So in your context, that would be considered sinful. Another example might be if you sign up to go to a school. There are some schools, both on the crazy charismatic end and then in some of the more um, kind of particular groups that want you not to have like romantic involvement while you're involved in their, their training program. Like some missionary schools do this. If you sign an agreement saying you're not going to date someone, then it's not legalism for them to say, no, no, you assigned this agreement that you weren't going to do this. We have a reason for it. And you agreed to it. Right. So that's part of that context. And then now is it wise? Is it beneficial? Is there a reason that this is somehow favorable for me? I think those are the basic questions you have to start with in this kind of a kind of a conundrum. Because like I said, there are a lot of things beyond just like Game of Thrones that we have to ask this question right. about. Podcasts I listen to, video games I play, food right. that I'm going to eat, music. people I'm going to spend time with, music I'm going to listen to, all of these things. Is it beneficial? Is it wise? Is it intrinsically sinful? Is there some reason it's sinful for me, even though it may not be sinful for someone else? Those are the questions we have to ask. So let's get into that real talk then, because I, because again, part of the reason for doing this episode is to once and for all, in some ways, definitively address what we've kind oh, of man. said in passing before. So we're talking about the, uh, basically, I would say viewing sexually explicit, you know, scenes on the screen and we're picking on Game of Thrones because they occur in Game of Thrones. And by the way, like just, just so people know, I have watched only one episode of Game of Thrones. I tried to get through that first episode and I was like, oh my gosh, like I, at that time yeah. when it first came out, I didn't know what I was, was about to experience. And I was watching it with my wife. And of course, like you can imagine just, just a general sense of uncomfortableness there right. with what was happening if you've seen it. And so we pick on it because people will say like, but the storytelling is so great essentially that I can compartmentalize these two things. So let's just be explicit from here on out. Like what say you, we just talk about this, like these two categories. There's some things that are like just overtly sinful. And there's some things that in the context can be sinful, but not overtly such. I'm putting you on the spot first, because I want you to answer it first. Which is this that we're talking about? Yeah. I mean, it's not really on the spot since I said this in the episode <laughs> we're talking about. Game of Thrones falls in that first category. Things that are intrinsically overtly sinful to partake, partake of. There's there, In my opinion, there is no way to consume 
Game of Thrones, the the I mean, I'm talking about the television show. I I tried to read a little bit of the book, and actually, I think the book falls under some of the same kinds of things because of how how sexually explicit it is. Even in writing, it was a bit much. Um, but the the TV show specifically, I don't believe there's any way to to sinlessly consume this because you are necessarily being exposed to yes. things that I don't think. Speaking as a guy, because I can't speak as a girl because I'm not a girl, but speaking as a guy, I really don't think that you're able to have these images put in front of your face and not have some sort of lustful reaction to them. It may not be conscious. It may not. It may get tamped down You know, quickly. You might get it under control quickly, but that's what they're intended to do. And these people are good at what they do. Like they're good at facilitating the kinds of responses they want. Right. And you know, the old adage sex sells part of the reason why game of Thrones was so popular is because it contains these kinds of scenes. So what you're doing with a show like this, and, and like I said, it could be any number of shows, any number of things, but you're, but what you're doing with this is you are putting something in front of you that is designed to inflame your passions in a sinful way. And then saying like, well, I'm strong enough not to do that. I'm strong enough for that not to happen. And, you know, we've brought up the Martin Luther quote, like before where he says like, I can't, I can't prevent the birds from flying yes. over my hair, over my head, but I can keep them from making a nest. He is not talking about intentionally putting a bird over your head. Like right. basically like if you're to, to take this situation and transport it to this, it's taking the bird, it's setting it on your head and then being like, well, I can take it off though. Why did you put it on your head in the first place? Why did right. you put this in front of your face in the first place? So I, I think that this fall, this show particularly um, falls in the category and, and we could talk about the specific like reasons why, but I don't know that that's super necessary, but th the main thing is like, it's intended to inflame your passions and whether you consciously recognize it or not, it is doing that. Yes. Um, I, I hear a lot of guys, particularly guys, you know, hear, this is the other thing that is maybe a little bit of a, of a tip off that I, speaking as a, a guy to my, to our male listeners, which is the majority. If you are not hearing women make the same kinds of arguments about a show like this, um, then, then maybe that should be an indicator for you, right? If, if there are not a ton of women who are also like, oh yeah, but the story is so good. I just can get past that. Um, th then maybe you should rethink your argument because there's something particular about Game of Thrones that is appealing to men that is not appealing to women. And so that, that forces the question, well, what is that? And, and the answer, of course, is the sexual, it's the sexually explicit material and it's the graphically violent material. And I think both, those are two different questions. We have to answer those differently as far as how we relate to those two things. But the primary difference for people who are going to ask, nobody is actually getting killed or stabbed in this show. That's all simulated violence. Right. So yes, there's a, there's an open question about whether we should be exposing ourselves to simulated violence or not. But at the end of the day, no one is actually sinning in pretending to kill each other necessarily. It's very different when we're talking about what's going on. And I, I even like struggle trying to describe even the small amount that I've seen. I also tried to watch the first episode and I, I think it was like within the first 10 minutes, there was a sexually explicit scene that I felt forced to turn it off. Yes. Um, it's not like you, it's not like you get, you know, drawn into the show 
you know, 45 minutes into an hour long episode and there's a sex scene and you're like, oh man, but I'm already so invested. It's like, you don't even know the main characters, who the, who the main characters are or what their names are or what this place that they live is called. And already there's things that should have you turning off the show. So, so most of the time when people are like, yeah, but the, the story is so good. I'm like, yeah, but you've already gone past several things that should have caused you to turn it off to even find out that the story is good. Yeah. And that's where I think, so I'm going to go out on a limb and say, first of all, you've been very kind and like setting this up where you said like, you know, you said these things and I agreed. I agree with you wholeheartedly. I also subscribe to all those same points of view because I think that's what the scripture demands of us. And if we're going to answer the question to dissipate a bit, well, can a Christian watch this? So in other words, the person watching this and maybe in some way, even having no sense or no conviction that what they're doing is like particularly wrong. Can that person be a Christian? I would say yes, but what we should be after is a heart that is sensitive and right. is discerning about everything we watch. And that comes with degrees of maturity and in sanctification. So I think that I, I want to draw to the scriptures here at this point in our conversation. And I want to do so because let's just say for a second, and I'm like going against like all presuppositional apologetics, but let's just say for a second that somebody is, is making the argument, well, I can watch this kind of thing. And I can compartmentalize, I can set it aside. It does not impact me. I'm not lustful. I can somehow deal with this in a way that's healthy. Let's say that's possible, which I think we would both say it's not actually, and that this is ruinous to your conscience, even in ways that you do not know. And we're saying that we're making this claim because if you look at the full arc of scripture, whether you go to Job and his covenant with, that he makes with his eyes about women, or you go to Jesus speaking about lustful intent when you look at a woman, or we go to Paul and his all of his preaching about what it means to live the Christian life and to pull away from sexual immorality, to abstain from these things. Everywhere we look, we find that there is this demand on us that the Christian removes themselves purposefully from these things. Even if we set that all aside, I want to draw to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where Paul, of course, is addressing the Corinthian church, who in lots of ways, like these poor Corinthians, right? Like they've made a mess of this whole thing. And part of it is that they've appropriated these really bad sexual ethics as normative, and they're trying in some ways to smuggle them into what it means to be a Christian. And so Paul says this in First uh, Corinthians six, beginning in verse chapter, er, in verse chapter in, in verse twelve, he says, "All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body." And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. So in that passage, what I see that's amazing to me is that he recognizes that the Corinthians would likely object to his like clamp down on their own sexual behavior. And so Paul opens up this whole verse by employing this common Greek rhetorical technique of diatribe, citing his opponent's objections to his argument, and then overcoming their persuasive force with all these counter arguments. And the idea is that one has this freedom in Christ, of course, and that would, that would certainly resonate with all these like influential Greek philosophies as it does with like this contemporary sense of like democratic freedoms, right? But what he's saying is freedom is not anarchy. Restrictions of behavior are necessary people, for people to get along. And even how like my exercise of my freedom can trespass on yours. But in Paul's understanding of Christianity, 
The freedom that Christ acquired for believers is from slavery to sin's power over them. His agonizing death does not buy them some kind of free pass to do whatever they want. They are free from the eternal death that sin causes, but that freedom is for service to Christ and for the cause of furthering his kingdom, which includes this high moral expectation. And so I, I see this in line with like everything that the Puritans wrote. Like instead of like always be closing, it's always be fighting. That like the war here isn't against the soul and the spirit. It's the spirit in the flesh. And that what this means for us is that we should abstain from this kind of thing because we know that one, God has commanded it. And because is if we to trust his wisdom, then what he's really saying is, like I've said before, when God says, don't do this thing, he's saying, don't hurt yourself. And yeah. even if we think at the end of the day that we're totally fine, we have to say that God knows better. And to appropriate freedom in Christ as saying, well, that means that if for some reason in my mind, I can turn myself around to think that it doesn't impact me, that I'm okay. That is actually a complete misappropriation of what yeah. Paul is saying here. Yeah. Here's what uh, John Calvin has to say about that passage that I think is really applicable. He says, they, the Corinthians, they reveled in excess of luxury. With this, there was, as usual, much pride mixed up in it, right? So so a lot of times, and not always, right? This, this Every person in every situation needs to be looked at individually and everybody needs to, to be reasonable people and look at the scriptures themselves. But a lot of times when we are faced with these things that really, I'm going to maybe go out on a little, this is a space maker episode, right? So I'm just going to say what I'm thinking. Make it happen. Like, don't be stupid, right? Don't be stupid about this stuff, right? There are things that are right in front of your face that are clearly sinful, that, that, that just, there's really no rational grounds to debate that deriving enjoyment from two naked people on the screen, rubbing their bodies against each other in this, in the, I'll even give you this in the service of a really great storyline, right? I don't actually think Game of Thrones is that great of a storyline, but I'll grant that in the service of a really great uh, storyline are still two people doing something terribly sinful in front of your face to inflame your passions. And it takes a certain measure of pride to be able to be like, yeah, but I'm not affected by that. Right. Yeah. But that doesn't, I mean, that doesn't, that doesn't get to me. I'm, I'm, I'm above that. That's a certain level of pride. And are you ready for this, Jesse? This is going to just rock your mind. Do you know how quickly I was able to find that reference from John Calvin? How quickly? I was able to find it like instantly because I, have been uh, using the newest version of Logos Bible software. So this may feel a little forced, and it's because it is a little forced, but it's that important that we thought we would force it right in here. So we have recently obtained a sponsorship from Logos Bible software, which is uh, honestly like I've used a lot of different kinds of Bible softwares. I'm not going to name them because I don't want to slander the competition, but uh, Logos really has gone above and beyond in terms of this suite of tools that they have created. Um, you can, you know, I was just, Jesse and I didn't plan this episode because we don't ever plan really anything about any of our episodes except a rough topic. While Jesse was talking, I was able to type 1 Corinthians six twelve in and it pulled up all the commentaries that I own. And the first option, because I've chosen to prioritize John Calvin, because that's where I want to go to first was John Calvin. So within the time that he said the passage, I was able to pull it up and have a, a quote ready and read it and process it right on my screen. So this is, 
this really is one of the best utilities out there. There are a lot of free options. Uh, you can get a lot of the Logos software for free. You can get a lot of different uh, packages for free. They give away a free book every month. Uh, there's there's thousands and thousands of resources available, but you really can't beat having a good paid uh, option because there's a lot of features that come right. in when you have uh, any of their packages available. And we know that it can be a little bit pricey. So uh, Logos has been generous enough to provide a discount for Reform Brotherhood listeners. You can go to www.logos.com, L-O-G-O-S.com slash Reformed Brotherhood, and you can uh, purchase any one of their packages with a discount uh, available. So seriously, check it out. I mean, I know this sounds cheesy, but even when you look beyond what they're doing with just the Bible software package, which is in itself a really formidable, amazing resource that they're providing for the church, that they're developing for the church, they have a whole suite of other utilities that help foster group Bible study, book clubs, dialogue. Right. Um, they have a suite of things in terms of like video presentation software that would replace something like PowerPoint or you know other kinds of competing, uh, competing stuff out there that integrates then with this. Um, it's just a lot of really great features. You'll be hearing more about this from us uh, as as we continue to explore this great software and make recommendations to you. But seriously, check it out. It, it's really good stuff. Um, and and we, we don't recommend stuff that we don't appreciate and use. Yes, that's absolutely true. And, and here's the thing why this is actually like fairly organic to what we're talking about. And that is, this is real talk, isn't it? Like you and I are talking about like how it is that we understand things that could be watched on TV and things that Christians are watching on TV. And some Christians are saying, this is not a big deal. Like it's a matter of personal conscience and to have a good study tool, a Bible study tool that would help you to understand what we're talking about here. They give you commentaries and resources to help you synthesize what's happening across all of the scriptures in the full counsel of God. Loved ones, this is what we need to be about. It's yep. just a matter of God's grace that we live in such a world that we can acquire these kind of resources and then be able to use them to live out what Christ would call us to, to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And that's what we're talking about here. And so it's a, it's a blessing to be able to use something like Logos to be able to say, what does it mean when Paul says that all things are lawful, but that all things are helpful? And how does that relate to what I watch on TV? Really, it's a blessing to be able to dive into the scriptures in a way that's like deep and profound. And that's what we're after here. I think that's something that you and I, that's like part and parcel of what we're trying to do here is like, and here's the thing, if you're listening to this and you're bristling at this. Again, I presume that you could find the unsubscribe button and that Tony and I, to be totally blunt with you, would find no love loss there. That we want to have deep and respectful dialogue with brothers and sisters about this. And yet that at the same time, we, at the end of the day, Tony and I are concerned with obeying the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. Not only because he knows what's best for us, but because all of this life is for his glory. If we're serious about that, what it means is that sometimes we will try harder, not because we're going to somehow try to make up the effort that we lack, but that we're going to go to the spirit and say, like, let me just say it this way. How many times have, and I'm just going to speak to, to you, the person who's listening to our voices right now, rhetorically, how many times have you been in a situation where you've, you, you see, and you're, you're an intelligent person, you're reasonably read the scriptures. You see that temptation is coming for you. You're about to enter a situation where temptation is going to, uh, to come upon you. And I'm saying this because I've been there myself this week in this last hour is in that moment, how often do we actually stop and try to rely on the Holy Spirit to give us the strength and the wherewithal and the energy and the focus to undergird that temptation? And then as Paul has said to us, that God will provide a way out from it. Or 
in contrast, how often do we just say, well, it's already happened. It already took place. Yeah. I can't do anything about it. And I've fallen and today is all lost. And so it doesn't really matter what happens then. When we say the do more, try harder, we're talking about the former here. We're talking about actually focusing our minds, taking captive, right? That's what Paul says, like take yeah. captive. It's to willing to work for your salvation. But it is the, is God himself who provides that energy, provides that power. So don't please don't set us up as straw men here to say like, well, what you guys are really saying is that you need to somehow prove yourselves and to meritoriously earn some sense of accomplishment that I have defeated my temptation. That's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is that when we're confronted with things like this TV shows, we have to make a choice. And is there a sacrifice we're saying, you know, no matter how great the storyline is, that what God commands, what is required actually of the Christian is to abstain from this. Because the argument we're essentially making is that this kind of viewing is sexual immorality. And once you enter the pool of sexual immorality, there is nothing to say about magnitude anymore. It's right. just that what God requires is that you stay away from that nonsense because it will hurt you. It will hurt your witness and is against profoundly everything that God represents in his moral character. And we need to take it seriously. So if we sound like we're coming across too hard, it's because we believe about this in such a hard way that there's just no line that can be drawn here. You and I, like we already crossed the Rubicon, like, you know, in episode 54. And so all we're trying to do is just like articulate that in a way that says like what we said then in passing is the same thing we believe now, but right. I hope we're, we're trying to throw some weight behind that. And the weight that we're bringing to bear here is just what God says. Like if you don't like this, then I would say to us, like the email you want to send to Tony and I at info at <laughs> is one in which you are going to prevent, present to us the scriptures that tell us it's okay to right. participate in this. Because I think what the scriptures say is it's just not okay. You, yeah. We can try to convince ourselves. You and I, Tony, can try to say like, and we've, we, I think, again, we've come to terms with some of the other things we've watched. Like, I just want to give an example so that I can express in some ways some humility for a place where I've gone. There was a time, I think I actually recommended like the show like Vikings, right? I think we yeah. talked about this like many episodes ago. And I become convinced over time that that show is even too violent. It's just too violent. It's not helpful. It's not advantageous. Yeah. And so like the Christian life is not just about like these minimal standards of like, well, Jesus saved me. And so I can live like hell until he brings me into his heaven. It's right. not that at all. The Christian life is concerned with saying what is now advantageous and helpful. I'm beyond this like minimal expectation of somehow I've prayed a particular pair or I've asked Jesus into my life, but this is about like righteous living. And what I find interesting is God requires no other character in ourselves that he has in himself, except for him saying, be holy as I am holy. And for men in particular, like dudes, hear me out on this. The best place where you can start with that is your sexual purity. No matter yeah. where you are in life, no matter what season you find yourself, no matter whether you're in relationship or out with a woman, the bottom line is the first place you can start with there, the most profound place, the most impactful place is your sexual uh, purity. And so yeah. it manifests itself in Game of Thrones. And here we yeah. are. Yeah. Before we wrap, and like like we said, this is just this is just a long episode. The beauty of podcasting is you can pause this and come back later. You don't have to sit in one sit and listen <laughs> in one setting. Or unsubscribe. I wanna I wanna <laughs> offer a few uh qualifications and some nuances, not to hedge our bets, because I don't think we're trying to do that, but because we want to be thorough. So 
that we should acknowledge and we do acknowledge. And if you actually listen to episode, the episode in question, we acknowledged it within that episode. We are not pastors, right? And, and even if we were pastors, we're not your pastor. So right. all, all of these questions, whether you have a question about um, someone, you know, and you, you're observing behavior in that person that is troubling to you that you're concerned about, or whether it's you yourself and, and, and you're wondering about a particular thing, all of those things should, you should go to your pastor. If you're ashamed to go to your pastor to ask him if it's okay for you to watch Game of Thrones, then maybe you should think about why that is too. A good litmus test for really anything is if you uh, if you would sit down and watch this with your pastor and not feel compelled to fast forward or pause it, then, then right. that's a pretty good indicator. Um, there are some things that are just weird and awkward to do with people that aren't in your family or, or you know, whatever. But uh, if you would feel uncomfortable sitting down with your pastor and watching a particular movie or consuming a particular beverage, then you should probably think of, at the very least, think about why that is. All of that said, all Christians have blind spots, right? We all of have course. areas Absolutely. that our conscience is not correctly attuned to, to reality. So I have a tough time understanding in this particular area, how a Christian could not be attuned to this since it is so in our faces every day of our lives in the world that Christians are different because we have these old fashioned sexual mores and, and bugaboos. Like I'd have a tough time understanding how this could be that thing for you, but I can acknowledge that maybe it is that thing for, for people. You know, I'm sure I have my blind spots. If I could tell you what they were, they wouldn't be blind spots, but I can remember a time. And, and I, I mentioned earlier that I've, I've rejoined the reform pub. I don't want to make like a big fanfare about that. It's not a big deal, but I had intentionally left the reform pub because I had identified that that had been a blind spot for me, that I had, I had lost the ability to engage online with people, particularly in that context without getting like cagey and aggressive and, and sinful about it. And without my pride coming to the forefront. So when God graciously revealed that, blind spot to me. I didn't do it immediately. It's not like I was like immediately like, yes, Lord, I'll obey you. Like it took me a little while to, to, to crucify that, that lust for, for argument and that lust for notoriety and lust for being out in front of people like that. It took me a while to crucify that and to, to move on and, and sort of separate myself from that. But I, when I rejoined, I told people that know me, if you see this coming back, I need you to tell me. And if you don't tell me, if I don't listen to you, when you tell me, I need you to call Jesse. And I need Jesse to tell me. And if that doesn't work, then I need Jesse to call my pastor. My pastor needs to tell me, right? So we, we have blind spots and this is where it's important and where it comes around. If you have people in your life that are trying to tell you this thing that you're doing, this show that you're watching, this book that you're reading, this, this drink that you're drinking, whatever it might be, right? Whatever the situation is, if you have people in your life that you trust to be good, godly people, if they are telling you, hey, this seems like a blind spot to you, and it really it really is concerning to me, then that's something that you should really, really take seriously. Right. At the end of the day, we are accountable to obey the scriptures as we understand them, and we're accountable to obey God. So it's not necessarily the case that you have to just take what everyone says and be like, yes, I'm just going to do whatever the people in my life tell me. Right. But if, if people in your life that you trust in other areas to give you good, godly, wise advice— are telling you this thing is not good for you, then maybe you maybe you need to think through that a little bit. Right. And and the, the last sort of qualification that I'll put on this, well, it's possible to be a Christian and be participating in ongoing 
blatant, heavy-handed, like high-handed, knowledgeable sin. It's possible. Our assurance of salvation is not grounded in uh, our accomplishment of good works or the fruit that we bear, but those are still evidences. And if yes. you lack any sort of evidence that you can point to that the that the the truth of the gospel has permeated and penetrated your heart and that the Holy Spirit has changed you, if there's zero evidence whatsoever, then the question you have to ask is not, how can it be that as a Christian I'm doing these things? The question you need to ask really is, has the Holy Spirit done this work in me? Because if the Holy Spirit has done this work in me and there is zero evidence, that's an unusual circumstance. That's outside of the norm. Maybe it's not impossible. I don't know, maybe, but it's outside of the norm. And so I want to make those qualifications because these these conversations, they seem all good and well, and they seem uh, they seem like, yeah, this is good stuff for us to think about. But when we really take this stuff seriously, sometimes it does call us and cause us to have to rethink some of the associations we have with people. Um, you know, I'm not going to make it a direction one way or another, but there are times where you have to look at something and go, this person is refusing to crucify this sin in their life. They're refusing. Right. And I think it's sinful. And I think that it is a, a dangerous thing for them. And if it's a dangerous thing for them and they're involved in my life, then it is in some sense a dangerous thing for me, even though I'm not directly participating in it. Right. And th this is this is the last little story that I'll tell. And it, it, it directs relately, uh, relax. <laughs> it relates directly to Game of Thrones. When Game of Thrones was really popular, I was still working in the kidney transplant department, and we were waiting for a staff meeting to start. And somebody asked me if I had uh, watched Game of Thrones this last weekend. Everybody loved the show. And I said, I said kind of flippantly, I said, no, I, I don't watch pornography. And I kind of chuckled. And they're like, what do you mean? And I was like, well, you know, like this, these scenes are, they're, they're really, they're pornographic. Like it, it may not be like full on like pornography, but they're very much pornographic. And I said, to be honest with you, like, I just respect women way too much to, to drive enjoyment out of the abuse that they're, they're having the abuse that's happening to them. And, you know, everyone kind of like, ah, oh, no, it's not like that. You know, they're given all the normal excuses. And these are, these are non-Christian people. I had one of the nurses who was in that meeting come up to me afterwards and say to me, you know, my boyfriend really, really likes this show. And it just makes me really nervous about what kind of expectations he has of me. Hmm. And, and that really hit me hard because, you know, she, she was talking about they, they were living together. It was very clear that they were living in sin. Like there was no two, two ways about it. They weren't Christians. But it was very clear that she was concerned that her boyfriend was going to have these unrealistic expectations of her sexually that she couldn't possibly fulfill. And what I had to say with her, say to her is like, well, you know, like you're not wrong to be concerned about that. Like that's a real thing that happens to guys. That's why pornography is so damaging to marriages in part, not just because of the infidelity that it represents, but because it changes the sexual and relational dynamic between a man and his wife such that like all of a sudden the woman just can't, can't live up to these unrealistic expectations. I don't know what happened with this nurse and her boyfriend. She left the section shortly after that, but it was a real thing. And here's what I want to read this to you because particularly with Game of Thrones, the most common responses we get are, well, it's just, it's a good storyline. And then when we start to say like, well, these women really are being abused. Right. The answer is like, well, no, they chose to do this here. Here's an article. It's on movieguide.org. I will um, try to include the link in the show notes, but we all know uh, what happens with show notes on our show is they just don't happen. But here's, here's the article, and I'm going to read, uh, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read a pretty significant portion of it. And it, it says, what happens on the screen doesn't always stay on the big screen. 
actress Amelia Clark, and, and for those who haven't watched the show, she is uh, she plays a really young woman who gets thrown into really terrible, abusive, exploitative sexual situations. She basically becomes a pawn in the story who's kind of handed around and married off to, to different people for alliance purposes, but just really is just sexually abused and exploited. She's basically trafficked. Says Amelia Clark, who rose to fame after starring in HBO's Game of Thrones, recently revealed that she was pressured to film scenes naked for the show. She is not alone. Actresses from Evangeline Lilly to Jennifer Lawrence have admitted either crying or drinking in response to filming scenes with little to no clothing. Speaking on Dax Shepard's Armchair Expert podcast, the 33-year-old, speaking of Clark, expressed her disbelief when she first landed the role of Darnaris Targaryen. I probably said that really wrong in Game of Thrones, which premiered in 2011. She says, quote, obviously I took the job. She said in the podcast related in November, quote, they sent me the scripts and I was reading them and I was like, oh, there's the catch. But finding out about the show's nudity didn't stop her right out of drama school. She decided to approach this as a job and believed if it's in the script, then it's clearly needed. But when she actually began filming the first season, which had a expletive ton of nudity, according to her, she felt a bit different. I had no idea. I have no idea what I'm doing. I have no idea what any of this is. I've never been on a film set like this before. She remembered. And now I'm on a film set completely naked with all these people. She dismissed, she would dismiss her feelings, have a cry in the bathroom, and then return to filming. That's when co-star Jason Momoa stepped in. Momoa plays Khal Drago, who rapes Daenerys after she's sold into marriage with him. Later in the show, she develops feelings for him. This scene, when I got to do them with Jason, were wonderful because he was like, no, sweetie, this isn't okay. And I'm like, oh. So like what we have is we have... This, this young woman, right? She's 33 now. So 2011, she was 23 years old. She's fresh out of college. We have other big stars, right? These aren't, these aren't like new people in the, the world of actresses. Evangeline Lilly, she was on Lost. She was in Ant-Man. Jennifer Lawrence obviously was in the, the Hunger Games trilogy. She's been involved in all sorts of stuff. And they're having to drink and cry because the psychological trauma that's happening to them to have to do this. And even the men who are involved in this, Jason Momoa is the guy who plays uh, Aquaman. He's that big guy, kind of got that sort of like Samoan. He's not Samoan, I don't think, but he's got that sort of big Samoan look to him. Even he, during the filming of these scenes, is trying to comfort this, this young woman who's really just a girl and saying, this isn't okay. But then he does it anyways. So he, it says here, a more experienced actor, Momoa knew about what should and shouldn't happen on the set. He was always like, can we get her a robe? She's shivering. Like it was a lot of that. So, so I want to say unequivocally, okay. I, I try very hard on the show not to take firm pastoral stances because I'm not a pastor, but on some level, all Christians have a pastoral responsibility to all other Christians. Right. This show is destructive and evil and demonic on every single conceivable level. Like, we've had a lot of questions. What do you really think about Game of Thrones? That's what I really think about Game of Thrones. <laughs> okay, There are other shows that, can, that may contain nudity or sexual scenes that don't, don't necessarily fall under this same category. But this particular show, from the writing, right, if you look at George Martin, George R. Martin, his, his stuff about how he developed this, from the writing of the books, which is, in, is just filled with sinful, terrible things, 
to the filming and the production, to the actual distribution, to the to the psychological trauma that the actors and actress, both the actors and the actresses have undergone. This really, there really is no excuse. And here, here's why I'm including this last part. And then we'll close is that most people who are watching Game of Thrones and are somehow justifying it as not really that bad have no idea that this kind of thing exists, that this kind of thing is out there, that this this poor girl, I mean, she's 22, 23 years old, right? Just just a total young woman coming out of college should not have to drink herself out of the trauma of having to pretend to be raped on the scene so that the HBO executives can can earn a buck, right? Or, or so she can earn a buck, a buck. Like this is not, this is not, uh, as simple as, well, they signed a contract. They did this voluntarily. So again, like we have these downer episodes where like, we just don't know where to go. This is not something Christians should be participating in. It really just isn't. Right. I I think in the final analysis, what we're saying here is the burden of proof. The onus is on us as Christians because we know how outspoken God is in his word about sexual morality, it's it's a prime importance to him that his children be sexually pure. Now, this isn't to say that you may have come from a background where perhaps you participated in something that you weren't proud of. There is forgiveness and redemption and restoration in Jesus Christ. And when we experience that, it should so fill us with joy and a new sense of devotion to him that we never want to go back to those things ever again and even a small way. And I will say that I think what we're partly saying here is that maybe you're hearing this for the first time and thinking, I just never even thought of it that way before. And so this is the call to action, which is to say, evaluate, go to the scriptures. As Paul says, and we've said several times, you're sensible people, read what God has said to us and then judge according to that standard, what it is that you consume and see if not, this is one of those things where you ought not to be participating because it messes with how you think about sex. It messes with how you think about women. It messes with how you think about intimacy and it will ultimately ruin your conscience. If not in this moment, in some time to come, it comes for us all. And so God says no, because what he's saying is don't hurt yourself. So at the end of this episode, the good news that we have is that one, Christ redeems all these things, that he provides forgiveness in a purity that even if you participate in all this stuff is unavailable to those who do not know him. And in knowing Jesus Christ, we may be made righteous because it's imputed righteousness. It doesn't come from ourselves. It doesn't come from having to undo all these things, which we can never do, but it comes from outside. So that's the first good news. The much lesser good news in the end of this episode <laughs> is that we still have to give away a copy of Reset by <laughs> Man, David Murray. We are so much alike. I was going to make the exact same hack together transition about lesser good news. Man, <laughs> maybe we should this should just be a solo a solo show. We should like pretend to be going back and forth because we're like the same mind on this stuff. Did you just portman to those two words like and turn it into sholo? A sholo? Yeah, we got like YOLO, you only live once and then sholo. Yes. You only and get like one, the one show once. Yeah, one I like show, it. Yeah, yeah. So, so let's give away after like this massive burying of the lead for <laughs> giving away a copy of this book. We went through this whole series of reading together reset by David Murray. It was so good. And we've said like before, I think part of what we envisioned here was that hopefully you're tracking with us, go back and read the book and listen to those episodes. But that you'd get a copy of this book as we're giving it away from the publisher and you'd be able then to give it away to a friend or maybe yes. you haven't read it. So read it yourself. And then give it away to a friend who might be able to use this, this grace-paced life, understanding that. So, 
Do we have a winner? Do we have we a winner? We do. We do. So we uh, we had the contest, and we won't draw it out any longer. The winner of the uh, Reset by David Murray contest is Ryan Polman. Poelman? So if you are Ryan and <laughs> yeah, you entered the Ryan. contest, please send us an email from the email that you entered to enter the contest. That's important because that's how we validate that you're not just some random person who created an email to <laughs> to scam us out of this uh, this book. But if you are Ryan Pullman, please email us from the email address that you used to enter to info at reformbrotherhood.com and we will get your uh, we'll get your book out in the mail to you as soon as we can. Uh, if we don't hear from Ryan, by the time we record this episode next Sunday, Ooh. then we're going to draw a new winner. So you're on the clock, Ryan. Please, please, please email us. We would love to get uh, this resource out to you. And of course, you can always contact us. Here's the thing. Tony and I decided when we started this whole endeavor, not just two hours ago when we started recording this, <laughs> but when we started back in episode one, that we really wanted to have actual conversations unscripted in real time about sometimes difficult things about what it means to live out the Christian life. And you've just witnessed that we're having that conversation. These are, these are our thoughts as we understand the scriptures and as we want to live both to honor our wives, to honor our sisters in Christ. And so here you have it. So you can always, we will not shy away from this. You can email us at info at reformbrotherhood.com or you can call us and leave us a voicemail. What is that number, Tony? 607-444-2767. Bros. And again, yes. might I just say again, please, we love when you leave us a voicemail. Just don't leave your phone number in the voicemail <laughs> because that way we can just play it for all to hear. And you don't have to worry that everybody who listens to us talk will then suddenly call your phone and want to talk to you as well. You may want that, but you may also not want that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. <laughs> so I think that this has in many ways been, for us at least, I can say at least this time, like the definitive Game of Thrones episode, because I think that we yes. at least tried to establish what we said in passing with a little bit more explicit focus. And so until next time, honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Love the brotherhood.